Well, good morning to you. Our dear brother Brian is on his way back from Florida. He was attending a wedding this weekend. And uh, he is also not going to be with us next weekend. He is receiving his uh, wonderful vacation that the, ch the church provided him with upon uh, his 10-year anniversary for him and uh, Kelly to be able to spend some time together. So I'm going to make a request of you, and I'm doing this formally. If you would, if you have any needs, any concerns regarding the church, not to call Brian this upcoming weekend to be able to do that. Now, Brian, you know, he loves to serve. He would kill me for saying that, to not call him. But Kelly would praise me to the ends of the earth for saying, don't call Brian this weekend, all right? So let's give them their time together to be able to enjoy a, a, a sweet time of fellowship, romantic time for them uh, to be reunited again next weekend. Uh, also, uh, we had the privilege of hearing from one of the Hale children. Ryan, thank you for sharing your gift with us this morning. Uh, and I think if I'm correct, if the flights have been arranged, your sister, uh, the other one of the other held children, leaves tomorrow, correct? She is making her way to West Asia uh, to serve time there, to do medical missions uh, as part of her seminary education. And we need to say a prayer for Liz as she makes her way over there and to be praying for her during her time there. So we'll do so as we begin now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that already we have come to celebrate what you have promised in your word. That in the word that's been given to us, we have this promise to come to you. To come and experience the joy of being with our God. And that has been made possible through the work of Jesus Christ alone. And so, Lord, we ask that as we spend time in the word this morning, that Lord, you would already impress upon us a sense of who Jesus is and who we are in relationship to him. I pray, Lord, that what we would see is Jesus and Jesus alone, not other people, not a religion, but that we would see Christ. And in the midst of that, we would also see our need for him. Lord, we thank you for the way that you are working around the world and that you are calling people, Lord, to serve you in very dark places, Lord, places that are struggling, places that um, people have fears and concerns in those areas, and that you are sending a, a dear sister like Liz there. We pray, Lord, that you would grant her traveling mercies and that, Lord, you would allow her ministry there to bear fruit as she shares the gospel with those she comes in contact with. We pray, Lord, that you would enlarge in us such a view of Jesus that when we leave this place, that we can't help but tell others about him. Thank you for what you've done in our lives. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. So before we get to our specific text this morning, I need to remind you of the context here of the overall passage. So if you will, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. This is important so we can get the full meaning of the parable in chapter 22. It also will prevent us from having a wrong interpretation of the passage. Now, we've arrived at the events of what is commonly known as Holy Week in Matthew's Gospel. This is the week that precedes the Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection on Sunday. 
That was the ultimate event that changed all of history. Jesus, the Son of God, very God himself, allowed himself to be crucified on a cross as a criminal, though he had committed no crime nor any sin. But in doing so, while he was on the cross, he received the full punishment that each member of the elect deserved for their personal transgressions. God the Father was pleased to punish him in our stead as the perfect sacrifice. And the proof that the sin debt was paid in full was in the resurrection. And the cross and the resurrection means there is hope for all of us to be reconciled to a holy God, to be received by him as his adopted children whom he fully loves. That is what occurs at the end of the week. But at this point in the narrative, Matthew is describing what happened in the days that immediately preceded the cross. We know on Sunday that Jesus rode triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem to the praises of its citizens. They shouted quotes from Psalm 118 to him. Hosanna, which means save us. Hosanna to the son of David. And blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. And upon his entry through the city gates, Jesus makes his way to the temple where he begins to cast out the merchants that were there to pray upon the Passover pilgrims. And he quotes Isaiah 56, 7 as he does so, that his father's house was meant to be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. And after that, according to verse 14, he begins to receive the blind and the lame so that he can heal them, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 35, 5, and 6. Now, consider that first day of the week. All the evidence that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah is there. He is receiving the praise of the people as such. He is performing miracles for the benefit of others. He is zealous for his father's house, and he is doing all in accordance with the scriptures. The Messiahship of Jesus should have been evident to every God-fearing Jew. But as we shall see, that was not the case. He was rejected by his own people. And this will be the theme of our author, Matthew, from chapter 21, verse 18, all the way through the end of chapter 23. Now, I mentioned this in my last sermon, that Matthew is not trying to describe these next four days in the life of Jesus chronologically, such as this is what happened on Monday, and this is what happened on Tuesday. But rather, he sums up the events of the week. His his interest is in describing the hearts of the religious authorities and why they refused to recognize Jesus as Messiah. It was not because the evidence was not there, but because as later John reveals in his gospel, they love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And Matthew inaugurates the second day with the story of the cursed fig tree. This was an event that his disciples were present to witness. It becomes a symbol and the theme for what follows. Jesus was hungry, and he sees a fig tree that has leaves, which indicates that it should have had fruit on it. But when he gets close enough, he discovers that there's no figs on the tree. So he curses the tree, and it dies immediately. Like Jeremiah 8.13, which states, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. The fig tree becomes a metaphor for the Jews that reject Jesus as Messiah. Like the fig tree, they give the appearance of being healthy, but they have no fruit. Therefore, they are cursed to destruction. That same symbolism is also used in the Old Testament passages of Isaiah chapter 5 and Jeremiah 24. 
the Lord will look at those among his people and he will find some that will give him lip service, but their hearts are far from him. And in the verses that follow this cursing of the fig tree, Matthew describes eight controversies that occur between Jesus and the two most prominent religious parties of Judaism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They give the appearance of righteousness, but their hearts bear no fruit. The first of these are when the chief priests and the elders challenge Jesus' authority, cleansing the temple, teaching the, the people along with the miraculous healings he was doing. When you think about what they were asking, it, it's really absurd here, right? Jesus, who gave you the authority to do what is right? And Jesus responds with his own question which is really a test as to whether or not these men are capable of recognizing authority. He asked whether John the Baptist's baptism was from heaven or from man. And you can see by their reaction, they feared the opinions of men rather than fearing God. This led Jesus into telling two consecutive parables, which become the next two controversial statements. The first was about two sons, one who ultimately obeyed his father and the other who did not. And even the religious leaders acknowledged that the one that eventually obeyed, produced fruit, did the will of his father. Then Jesus tells the parable of the wicked tenants who, though they were only renting a vineyard, took the owner's son and killed him, hoping to take the inheritance for themselves. The story was so emotive that even the chief priests and elders wanted to execute justice on the tenants. They said the owner had every right to kill the renters and, and to give the care of the property to others. And Jesus warns them that is exactly what will happen to them. They will be removed and the inheritance will be given to another. They refuse to see that Jesus is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. These men gave the appearance of accommodating to God, but the fruit in their life showed they do not belong to God. The fact that they want to arrest Jesus in verse 46 without cause demonstrates this point all the more. So now we arrive at our fourth point of controversy, and this is another parable. Now remember, biblical parables have two purposes. One is that it is a comparison of two different items that illustrates a spiritual truth. A parable is a comparison of two different items that illustrate a spiritual truth. And second, Jesus also revealed back in Matthew chapter 13 that only to those whom the secrets of the kingdom have been given will understand the full ramifications of the parable. Hence, in the parable of the wicked tenants, the chief priests and the Pharisees were angry at the injustice done to the owner's son, but they failed to grasp the full meaning of the story that they should repent because they were the wicked tenants. So only the elect of God see the entire meaning of the parables. Like Jesus said in chapter 13, if they could see and hear, then they would understand by turning and repenting. So at the beginning of chapter 22, Jesus tells another parable. And it's directed to them, meaning the chief priests and the Pharisees, mentioned in chapter 21, verse 45. It is a parable that's divided into four parts. First, you have the invitation to the occasion, Second, the refusal to attend the occasion. Third, a new invitation to the event. And finally, the appropriate dress for the occasion. 
So in a nutshell, we have invitation, refusal, new invitation, and dressed appropriately. Keep that in mind as we work our way through our text here. Jesus uses an illustration here that most likely any person of the first century Roman world would have been very familiar, that of a monarch's wedding feast for his child. Marriage feasts among the nobility were truly notable events. When the future heir of the throne was getting married, everyone wanted to be invited. It would be considered the party event of the year. And Jesus states that such an occasion may be compared to the kingdom of heaven. So don't miss the main point by what follows here, folks. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a party, a celebration like no other. We saw that in our passage in Isaiah that we read earlier in the service where we are instructed to eat what is good and to delight ourselves in rich foods. Heaven is not some boring place where we float on clouds and we play harps and such, right? Heaven is a party, the most glorious party that you can ever imagine. It will be endless, and those who attend it will never give out a strength. But in the comparison of the parable... The occasion is a king giving a wedding feast for his son. Now, remember, in the first century world, everyone wanted to attend the wedding of an heir. It was a prestigious event, a place to be seen and recognized as someone who was important to the king. In fact, just 10 years ago, we saw a similar event when Prince William and Kate Middleton got married in Westminster Abbey. Only 2,000 people were allowed to attend the wedding. Not only did you have immediate family members, but you had every blue-blooded royal relative that wanted to attend, along with foreign dignitaries and celebrities and even their spouses. Everyone wanted to be present to experience the luxury, the, the pageantry, the elegant food and the dress. Everyone wanted to be seen at such a prestigious event and have their pictures in the tabloids. And the same occurs here. First century weddings were, were week-long events that were filled with food and music and celebration. The last thing you would expect is someone to refuse to attend. Not only would it be shocking not to attend, it would be the ultimate insult to the king. And that is precisely what occurs here. The first invitation is given in verse 3. And we're told the invited guests simply would not come. So the king thinks to himself, well, perhaps they didn't understand here. He reissues the invitation, sending his servants with a message saying, I have rich beef. My fatted calves and oxen have been slaughtered. This would have meant my finest produce is available to you. The best I have to offer will be before you. Think week-long Texas Day Brazil. Come to the feast. You don't want to miss out. Now, it would have been one thing if someone had a legitimate excuse, right? The one would be hard-pressed to find such an excuse short of, I'm sick and dying in this moment, that they would not obey the king's order to attend. But not even that occurred here. Verse 6 tells us they gave mundane reasons for being absent. One had some farm work to do. Others had some business deals that they had to attend to. But even worse... They didn't just ignore the invitation. They saw it as a nuisance. Some of the invited guests shamefully beat the heralds of the king. And there were even some that murdered the servants who were sent to honor them with an invitation. 
It was the ultimate act of disrespect to the monarch. And there are consequences to this. In verse 7, we're told of the king's wrath and executing justice upon those who murdered his servants. He sent his troops exacting justice by burning their cities to the ground. Those who did not come, the king pronounced judgment upon them by declaring them not worthy to be in his presence. Not worthy to be in his presence. So a surprising turn of events occurs in verse 8. He tells his servants to go out to the main roads and invite anyone willing to come to the feast. People who were once considered unworthy are now pronounced worthy of coming to the party. Uh, Imagine those who were excluded now being invited to the greatest event of the year, possibly the greatest event of the decade or longer. Do they dare believe these heralds that they're actually allowed to come into the presence of the king? I'm sure they must have thought, this this has to be some sort of joke. Maybe I'll be embarrassed and refused entry into the palace. And imagine their surprise upon obeying the call to come and being escorted into the king's personal chambers. And note the text tells us in verse 10, this is precisely what happened. It tells us the wedding hall was full of these new guests. But not only was it full, but Jesus emphasizes there were those in attendance here who were both morally good and bad, who believed that they would be welcomed by the king. Both Greek words here, poneros, translated as bad, or sometimes it's translated as wicked in the New Testament, and agathos, meaning good, denote the quality of morality. So there were some here among the guests that outsiders would think should not be in the presence of the king. Perhaps people like the tax collectors and the prostitutes that Jesus refers to in chapter 21, verse 32. And yet they get to participate in the party all because they believed the invitation. It's astonishing. But just in case that people thought they could just come in in any old willy-nilly manner they choose, that they could impose their own selfish desires upon the king, there is a caveat here in the parable. The king examines the guest, and he finds a man in attendance that is not wearing a wedding garment. This man accepted the king's invitation, but he did not give the king the respect of wearing his best to the ceremony. This would have been an offense to the royal family. In fact, the king was surprised that he had gained admittance at all. How did you get into here without a wedding garment, the king asked. The man was speechless. He knew he had done wrong. Perhaps he presumed on the good nature of the king that he could slight the monarch in such a manner. This man came in unprepared, and he will be cast out in the darkness. Weeping and gnashing of teeth imply a state of considerable anguish. There will be true regret by this guest for not coming in a manner worthy of the presence of the king. And Jesus concludes the parable here with a pithy statement. For many are called, but few chosen. There will be a broad invitation to come into the kingdom, but there are still fewer that will be chosen by the king. So what should be 
our response to the parable this morning. There was definitely an interpretation that Jesus' first century audience would have understood. And there is a spiritual interpretation that's still relevant for us today. May he who has ears hear. It's very clear from the context of chapters 21 and 22 that the party represents the kingdom of heaven. And according to Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9, there will be a wedding feast for the Lamb of God and his bride, the church. A feast like no other. John writes there, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. When the elect of God are reunited with their king, it will be a party of the likes of which has never been seen for all of eternity. But also note, from, from God's perspective, he's under no obligation to invite anyone into his presence whatsoever. He doesn't need anything from his creation. Yet he is gracious in allowing us to be in his presence in a joyful state for all of eternity. It's also clear from the context here that those who are refusing the invitation are the first century Jewish establishment. Now, this is not a dispensational parable of an event that's going to happen in the future. It was relevant to the Jews in their immediate context. They were refusing to acknowledge the authority of the Lord Jesus. They were refusing to answer his call to obey. They were ignoring the calls of the prophets, God's servants, and as we shall see in the weeks ahead, they will kill God's son when they deliver him over to the Gentiles to be hung to a cross. They had the initial right to be invited, but now they are declared unworthy to come. And like the example of the fig tree, Unless they bear fruit, they are cursed. And yet, those who had no right to be invited suddenly find themselves worthy of attending. They would have thought they have no reason to be invited to the party. In fact, they thought for sure they would be excluded. But now there is access. They can come. And Jesus has been dropping hints of this all along. When Jesus clears out the temple in chapter 21, and he declares, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers, that is a partial quote from Isaiah 56, verse 7. Let me read the entire passage to you, because it would have not been lost on his audience that valued scripture memorization and oral tradition. This is Isaiah 56, 6 through 8. Get this. And the foreigners, meaning the Gentiles, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. 
Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. (laughs) Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, those who thought they could never enter the kingdom now can. Jesus says in chapter 21, verse 32, that tax collectors and prostitutes will now be able to enter because they believe the invitation. In chapter 21, verse 43, he reveals the kingdom will be taken away from these Jewish leaders and given to a people producing fruit. Now, even we Gentiles are welcome into the kingdom because we believe the invitation. Do you think in your head right now, well, I, 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 I can never enter heaven. God will never forgive what I've done. There is no way that the Lord will welcome me. Don't you believe that lie? Don't you believe it? That is not what Jesus says. You have been invited. And the only thing preventing you from entering into the kingdom is your own unbelief of refusing the invitation. But also be aware, just as Jesus warns here, don't presume of the king that you can just come to him any old way that you want to do so. You must come in a manner that demonstrates your love and your respect for him, that you value what he is offering you. And just so we're clear, it has nothing to do with your actual clothes here. It's about your attitude. Now, for my theologically astute friends who who know that we can only stand before our holy God robed in the righteousness of Christ, that what we, we sang about a little bit earlier in the service, I wholeheartedly agree with you. That is clearly taught in other passages of Scripture. But I also agree here with D.A. Carson that we might be pressing too much upon this particular text if we're trying to read that into it. Jesus has not mentioned his own righteousness yet. So at this point, that might be asking a little bit too much of this verse. But he is clear that you can only come into the kingdom in the manner that the king prescribes. And all throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been declaring that no man comes to the Father except through him. We enter into the kingdom through Jesus. We repent of our sin and we believe in him and what he has done on our behalf. We prove that we believe by living our lives that is consistent with what we believe. That Jesus is our Lord. He is our master and we desire to conform to his image. Friend, my greatest concern is that you are trying to show you belong to the Lord through some external actions, but yet your life is not revealing legitimate fruit. You have an outward appearance of self-righteousness, but there is no love for others within inside of you. There is no self-discipline to put off your sin nature. There is no joy. You sense there is no peace between you and God, and you're constantly striving for it through your behavior. There is no gentleness, no kindness, no patience with others. In fact, if we were to put you up into a police lineup, you would look more like these Pharisees than you would the Lord Jesus. 
You see, I know what that's like. It's exhausting. For years, I tried to produce righteous behavior before others. It was like carrying this great burden while hiding who I was inside, trying to live up to a standard that I knew I was never able to meet, always pretending to to be something I was not, and the easiest way to do that was by comparing myself to other people. If I could just do it better than this person over here or be seen on the same level as that person, then I'll be okay. All the while having this inner turmoil that is not enough. But Jesus invites you to come to him and simply believe that he is enough. He wants you to come as you are, whether you are morally good or morally bad. It doesn't matter the state of your heart currently. You might be struggling with some great hidden sin, and yet he says, come. This is the same invitation that Pastor Brian preached upon last week from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Man, that was a verse that came so alive to me when I realized I could stop pretending and be the sinner that God told me that I was and recognize that what I need is Christ, not something from myself. And here's how you must come. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus does demand that you come to him in the manner he prescribes. And it's an easy demand, one in which he says you believe that he does all the work and you trust that he has. That you believe Jesus is God and Lord, that only his atonement at the cross is the only remedy for your sin. That is his yoke. Come you who thirst, come to the waters. Come, you who desire to buy the best food but cannot afford it, and it will be given to you. Come, you who want to be glorified in the the Holy One of Israel, that he may have compassion upon you and pardon you abundantly. Believe this invitation that you can come through Jesus for his word, his promises, never return void. He is faithful and true. Oh, poor sinner. Will you admit your need for him and come to him on this day? The invitation is being offered to you. Come. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, I know that there are three types of people that are in this room and maybe listening online to the sound of my voice now. The first are those who have accepted your beautiful invitation. They have seen themselves or who they truly are. That left to their own estate, they could do nothing. But they see that your son Jesus has done it all for them. And they have come to him and they've placed their faith in him and they have had the relief of sin lifted off of their shoulders. They experience true joy. 
They long to be with you in your presence and they long to conform themselves to the image of your son. The second type of person that is here, Lord, is those people who are fearful, those who are so conscious and aware of their sin that they think that they cannot come to you. They are paralyzed. And perhaps, Lord, they have seen religious people who have portrayed an image of your son that is not accurate. Perhaps, Lord, they have seen religious people who try to put a burden upon them that they have to live by some external actions rather than putting their trust in your son. Lord, we pray that you would lift the veil from their eyes, that they would see that there is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has already secured them, and that their faith would be in that alone. Remove that fear, Lord. Let them see through passages of Scripture like we just read that you will welcome them, that you will love them, that you will call them your own, that you will feast with them for all of eternity. And then, Lord, there is a third type of person that typically sits in the pews of churches who think that they can earn their righteousness by their behavior. Or perhaps they think that they can hide from everyone else what is truly going on inside of them. Lord, I know that such people tend to be very prideful. It's hard for them to admit that they're wrong. It's hard for them to admit their need. And so, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work even in their hearts, that you would unleash the chains that bind them through their own self-righteousness, And that, Lord, you would allow them to see that this is not something that can be earned, but something that is given. It is given only through Jesus. And that, Lord, in the midst of it, they would lay down their self-righteousness and come to Jesus and see him as the true remedy of their souls so that they can finally find rest. So, Lord, work in the hearts of all three types of these people this morning. Allow us to experience the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior. Allow us to experience the joy of knowing that our sin has been paid in full and that Jesus has secured it and his resurrection proves that there is life after this one. I pray, Lord, that this would be your will this morning. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.